electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, Happy New Year. The markets are closed, but Squawk Pod is here. In the podcast, Microsoft President Brad Smith. If you create technology that changes the world, you do bear a responsibility to help address the world that you've helped create. We'll bring you a special conversation with the computing giant's chief thinker on issues of policy about technology's tools and weapons. Ultimately, this is a space where we will need new laws. And because it's a holiday pod, a listen to the people behind Squawk Box. So we pride ourselves in the Squawk Box control room being a, a calm, controlled chaos. Chaos I being chaos. It's chaos. I am CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Wednesday, January 1st, 2020. A new year, a new decade, a new Squawk Pod. Right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Think Microsoft, and you probably think about the trillion-dollar technology giant powering just about every office you've ever worked in and more than 90% of household computers. You may not think about Brad Smith, president and longtime chief legal officer. He joined Microsoft as a lawyer in their antitrust fight in the 1990s, and he's one of the company's longest-serving executives, a key link from the era of founder Bill Gates to the demands of the 21st century global economy. In his recent book, Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age, Smith focuses on the problems technology has created and the ones that Microsoft and its peers can solve. Here he is on Squawk Box. Microsoft, President Brad Smith is here. With anchors Becky Quick, Joe Kernan, and Mike Santoli, who was in for Andrew Ross Sorkin the day of this interview. Becky Quick starts us off. Brad, thanks for being here. It's Thank great you. to see you. Um, I want to talk first of all about why you wrote this book. I, I think of... Um, superheroes to some extent, where you say, with great power comes great responsibility. Is that what kind of brought this on? That's a big part of it. I think if you look at, just look at the issues that you cover every day, it's increasingly tech everywhere. And we thought it was important to make these issues more accessible, to bring them to life so people can understand them better, and to show that there are some paths forward to address them, because I think the world wants the tech sector, and it wants people in government to do more to address these issues. You think this is really an inflection point right now in society? 
I think that there is an inflection point. I think it started last year with Cambridge Analytica, uh, and I think we're just seeing it continue to unfold. And what we're really seeing is you know, the first year of the next decade. This is going to be with us for quite a while. What are the big issues when you look around and you think, okay, these are some big problems. They need focus, they need attention, and they need some solutions. In some ways, there's a big part about trust. People want to know whether they can trust tech when it comes to the privacy of the, their data, the security of their data, uh, how artificial intelligence is really going to work. But there's also a lot of issues that just hit people at home, and, and they're economic issues. What is AI going to do to my job? Uh, what is AI going to do to my community? What does it mean for my kids? What skills are they going to need to learn? Uh, what does this mean for rural communities that don't have broadband today? What does this mean for urban cities where we see tech towers being built but middle-income people being displaced in terms of their housing? If you actually think about the issues we debate every day, they have these technology roots. And we wanted to really capture how technology is impacting all of the other things we talk about every day. Before we solve the problems for the rest of the tech sector and all of society, why don't we start with what you're doing at Microsoft? How are you thinking about some of these things in-house? Let's just take artificial intelligence. What's one way that you're kind of dealing with some of the potential problems and, and, and trying to fix it at Microsoft before it gets out? We started last year, we set forth six ethical principles that we said would guide our development and deployment of AI around issues like bias, accountability, privacy, safety, and the like. Uh, we've been advocating ourselves for new laws, laws around facial recognition. We've said we don't want to see a commercial race to the bottom because that's where you just let this genie out of the bottle and then we wake up five years from now and we find that we're really not comfortable societally with how law enforcement is using facial recognition or how shopping malls are using it. Uh, we, or governments. Exactly. At large. Governments around the world. And we recognize there are days when the smartest thing that we can do for the long-term value of our company is turn down a short-term deal. And we've done that in certain cases where, for example, facial recognition would be used in ways that would either cause bias and discrimination against certain groups of people, women, people of color, or governments, especially overseas, where we felt that facial recognition could be deployed in ways that could really unleash mass surveillance. And that's just not a future we want to help create. Can you be more specific, or is that about as specific as you want to get with some of those? We shy away from identifying specific customers unless they want to talk as well. We have shared that there was a, a police department in, in California. And to me, the interesting aspect of that episode was when we went to them and we said, we don't think it makes sense for us to provide you with facial recognition to do what you want to do. Our first concern was, well, gee, they're just going to go choose from a competitor. Instead, they said, you know what? We are so glad that you said this to us. Because you've kept us from making a mistake ourselves. And frankly, they've said, you're the kind of company we want to work with for the long term. So Microsoft has set out these ethical principles and you're in communication with customers that you encounter. Should there be a more central kind of rule-setting function? Uh, does, does somebody have to set uh, industry standards in these regards? Ultimately, I think the answer is yes. I think we'll need industry standards to address a number of these issues. Ultimately, this is a space where we will need new laws. And I think this will be one of the leading policy issues for the next decade. Where do we want rules in place to govern how computers make decisions? 
it's clear that people want people to remain in charge. And if we're going to empower computers, we need to know how the computers are going to make decisions. You know, that U.S. law enforcement agency may have turned around and said, thank you very much. We really appreciate you pointing this out. My guess is there are some overseas governments that when and if you turned them down would turn to somebody else. Maybe it's a Huawei, maybe it's somebody else. And they say, sure, no problem. We are willing to fill the void. So you can look for someone to set industry standards, but there are always going to be people in the industry, companies in the industry that play outside the rules. You can look for a government to set standards, but unless you have a global set of standards that everybody actually follows and listens to the rules on, you're always going to have somebody else who is taking what you've done and maybe stepping it up or giving it to players you wouldn't like to see it given to. I think you've just hit the nail on the head of one of the global questions for the next decade. Because even if we can succeed in the United States in in developing an approach that we're comfortable with, um, what will Europe do? What will China do? Um, We want to see us take a high road in terms of creating technology that the world can trust. And at the same time, we don't want to be undercut by foreign competition. So there is a real global strategy that we are pursuing, that the whole industry is going to need to pursue. And I think that connects with many of the other trade issues of the day. I mean, right. I'm thinking about this with China in particular, when we say that the reason we're here in these trade talks with them is because they they don't follow any of the WTO standards or rules that they were supposed to be abiding by. How could we trust that any global entity would have not just every country, but a major country like China with massive population, second largest economy in the world, how can we trust that something's going to get done even if we have these ideals and standards? Well, I think that there's a way to break it into two parts. The first is what will a country like China do in a country like China? You know, there is facial recognition being deployed there in ways that Americans would probably look at and say we're not comfortable in terms of mass surveillance. Ultimately, though, there's 1.4 billion people that live in China. If you add up North America, if you add up Western Europe, Japan, the other democracies of the world, you have an even larger group of people. And I think in some ways, in the race for technology, who's going to pick the winner between American firms and Chinese firms? The answer is Europe. The answer is Japan. Uh, And I think it's in part our case to be made to them that we need to work together to preserve values that we really feel are timeless. I mean, we're always excited about technology, but we also recognize that technology actually needs to serve timeless values and not simply march on over them. These state attorneys general, uh, 50 of them, who are going after big tech writ large, I have to say, all of the times, every day we talk about this issue, we almost never bring up Microsoft as part of that. And that's kind of hard to imagine when Microsoft used to be the evil empire that, that, that regulators were focusing on. You guys have really avoided this. How? What happened? What was the transformation at Microsoft? What's it like being there now, watching this with other companies? Well, we were the first graduate of the school of hard knocks when it came to technology and antitrust. Uh, you know, it's easy for people to forget today that in the late 1990s, the year 2000, the U.S. government and 20 state attorneys general were seeking to break up Microsoft. Um, We learned a lot of valuable lessons. And the first thing we do every day is try to remember them. Uh, Because one of the lessons we learned is you have to really look at yourself in the mirror. You have to be able to see what other people see and not just what you like to see in yourself. You have to understand the problems that people are raising, which means you have to get out and listen to them. 
And then you have to be prepared to start solving problems. You have to compromise in order to you know, find a path forward. If you look at the history of antitrust and big tech, which didn't start with Microsoft, it actually started with Standard Oil and the tech of the early 20th century, one of the real lessons is that when these things start, they last a long time. The entire Microsoft set of issues lasted 29 years, which was less time than it took for IBM or AT&T. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of common sense, frankly, in what we took away. Better to figure out how to solve problems than just keep hiring more lawyers to fight them. Bill Gates himself has said that uh, he thinks that investigation, not only from the state's attorney general, but from the U.S. government, that that really caused him to take his eye off the ball in some situations because he had to spend so much time focused on that. Probably the same for the rest of top management there. Do you think that that is likely to repeat itself with some of the other big companies today? How difficult is it to be trying to lead in your industry and find all the fast changes that are coming even faster today than they were back then, but also be dealing with such huge questions coming not only from the U.S. government, from the state's attorney generals, from the EU, from all over the place? If there's one thing that is clear to all of us, it's sort of the laws of physics. Time is finite. Every hour you spend doing one thing, you can't spend that hour doing something else. In those years at Microsoft, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, all of us, we had to spend a lot of hours focused on antitrust issues, depositions, settlement negotiations, you know, the issues of the day. You can't help but wonder what you would have done if you could have had that time back. It's the opportunity cost of time. And I still remember when one of the members of our board of directors said that in the boardroom in the early 2000s. And it's a comment that has always stuck with me. You've got to decide where you're going to spend your time. And when you're in the tech sector, when the world is changing, when the technology is moving so fast, spending it on antitrust issues probably is not where most CEOs or senior leaders would would want to allocate their attention. Once the wheels of the federal and state governments get, get ramped up and start rolling like this, though, is it too late? Is there anything any of these companies can do to, to stop the, uh, the onslaught that is probably coming? I think that there is a lot of inertia to these things, and I think your question points that out. The answer, I would say, is it's never too late. Uh, and the, the real question for, for all of us, really, is... What are the tech problems that we want to see the world solve? And, and that's really why we wrote this book. Um, you know, and what, uh, you can talk about economic power and the like, but a lot of what really, I think, weighs on people's minds is what it means for them personally. You know, what does this mean for my data? What does this mean for my security? Uh, and I think the more we can work together across the tech sector to address the root issues that weigh on people's minds the most, It's not going to end every issue for every individual company, but it will create a healthier climate. And I think it's a healthier climate, not just for the tech sector, but for the entire U.S. economy, because the truth is almost every company is becoming a tech company in part. So when we talk about ethical principles for artificial intelligence, we recognize we need to create these not only for ourselves, we need to get out and share them with our customers. And so when you put it in that broad perspective, then it's like it's it's. Not a day too late, but we better not wait until tomorrow. You um, 
it's hard to solve the world's problems if, if you go out of business. So, I mean, <laughs> you, you do need to stay profitable. Uh, I mean, it's, it's nice to want to help everyone, but, but that's part of it. Right? Let's just get to um, uh, what, what a company's uh, mandate really is. You, you're, you're lean and hungry. You're new. You want to crush competition. That seems like what, what you want to do. You want to be so good at what you do that you're not worried about competitors. You're worried about uh, your customers, you're worried about surviving, everything else. Suddenly you get to a point where you're so good at, at what you do that people start calling you a monopoly when you haven't really employed any monopolistic practices necessarily because you're hurting competitors. And that happened to Microsoft over in Europe because they got a different idea of how antitrust works. Should we immediately assume that there's something untoward going on uh, with a company just because it has a huge market cap and a dominant position? Or is it exactly what you were trying to do right from the beginning? I don't think that one should ever equate size in and of itself with, you know, Success, a, a potential, size. Yeah, with, you know, with a potential threat or harm. I do think that with power comes responsibility. And, you know, the point we make in the book, look, if you create technology that changes the world, you do a bear, bear a responsibility to help address the world that you've helped create. And I think specifically to address your question, you want to move fast, but you need some guardrails. The guardrails keep you on the road, knowing what you stand for, knowing what your principles are, knowing what you want to avoid. I believe in the long run, that's what serves companies and the, share, and the shareholders the best. I just don't see what the companies that are in the crosshairs of the AGs, they have nothing in common other than being really successful and being very large. So how can all of them... How do we suspect all of them of doing things that are unethical or, or doing things that need guardrails? As you well, put it? look, I'm not here to advocate for antitrust action against others in the tech sector. I am here to advocate for work that we all need to do to address the issues that technology is creating right. for the world and get at the underlying problems. But if, that if, if consumers are not being harmed and, in fact, are benefiting, where everything basically is cheaper than it ever has been and it's almost free... Do we need, how do we know when to worry about emerging um, competitors being blocked out? I mean, when it's no longer hurting the, the consumer or the customer, that's who you normally think of, but suddenly you're worried about competitively that new entrants aren't getting in. How do, how do you decide when that's a, a, a real issue? Well, I think that you do what you just suggested. You ask, what's the problem here? Is there a problem that needs to be solved? Are competitors being harmed or blocked by offering their apps on an app store, for example? Okay. That's an example That's of a specific harm. one. But or, I'd like to harm most competitors as yeah. if I was uh, starting a business, wouldn't you? Well, and that's why antitrust law in the United States and around the world says that you can do that when you're small, but once you have a certain size, a certain position in the marketplace, you don't have that same freedom to maneuver. I do think there's this broader dimension to increasingly antitrust law today, which looks beyond traditional competitive and economic harm. And it does ask, what is the impact of this on data? What is the impact of this on democracy? Right. Uh, and that's where you know, the, the Justice Department is increasingly focusing. And I'm not sure that they're out of touch with the American public when they're asking the broader questions about the implications of technology. Do you still, you tweeted out some favorable things, to, uh, you're not part of the business roundtable, but you were favorable, uh, favorable about some of the new, um, I don't know what they were, uh, I guess they were guidelines, I'm, I'm not, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't solely virtue signaling, although yeah. a lot of it was. The mission but, statement. Yeah. Mission statement. Was Milton Friedman wrong that, that um, 
that enhancing shareholder value kind of trickles down and takes care of a lot of different issues, and you may not necessarily have to specifically say, I'm going to be a good person. I mean, you, you stay within the law, you satisfy customers, you expand your employee base, shareholders are, uh, benefit, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Do you need to say, you need to think about other things? If you don't say that, does shareholder value actually end up hurting someone? Well, I, I think the business roundtable has really defined the issue correctly for the 21st century. Why? Because what they say is focus on customers first. Right. Take care of your employees. Be a good steward in your community. All that would happen from enhancing shareholder value, though. But I would argue that the opposite is even a better strategy. Take care of customers first, and in the long term, okay. your that's shareholders a, are going to do very, very well. Right. And I would almost argue, if look at Microsoft. Look at what we've done over the last five or six years. We, we, we've sued the United States government in two different administrations right. when we thought we needed to to protect customers. Right. What, what, you get bloated. Tech companies get bloated. World enters a slowdown. You fire nobody. You, you don't tighten your belt. You're not profitable anymore. Everybody ends up not having a job. And when you were thinking only about your, your uh, employees and you're unable to do some of the really tough things to rationalize a business that you, why, why won't that happen? Well, I think the point you're making is any good idea taken too far ends up creating problems. And you think shareholder value and, and chasing that has been taken too far? No. Okay. What I'm saying is, look, of course, if you say that we're going to take care of our employees but never restructure the company, we're yeah. never going to let anybody go. That's not a sensible somebody in China path for balance. Lunch or someone somewhere yeah, else, yeah. and you're going to end up. With, okay, let's do the privacy thing. So I, we were talking. I don't. I'm not going to add up the market caps of all the companies that have stolen my data. But I, I don't. Or that you've freely given it. Freely to. given it to them, <laughs> and I'm fine. Uh, should I? Am I? Uh, and, and don't answer this. But am I a, a sucker that, that I've, I've been, in many ways I am? But I love Google Maps. I, Take everything. I don't have any really, nothing's that interesting for me, I don't think. But should I have uh, demanded more compensation for all this information that advertisers are getting about me? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is equip people with the knowledge about how much data there is about them, empower them so they can make more decisions. I think, interestingly, maybe even ironically, the leader in empowering people with knowledge about their data is the European Union with oh, its God. law from a year and a half ago. Right. Um, you know, we're the one company that said we're going to extend those benefits and those rights to all of our customers everywhere in the world because we do think that people have the right to know what data we have about them, regardless yeah. of where they live. We'll, I think, benefit if the market goes to work, if there are more opportunities for people to use their data in different the ways. You did something right. That, that's like, what is it, the blind uh, kernel of corn? How does that work? Anyway, so they, they actually, that's good. Uh, anyway. We're out of time. That went fast, didn't it? It, it did. sure did. Thank you. You know, Come I'm back. thinking I might read okay. your book. I'm not I hope you will. We wrote it so that it would be fun to read. That was one of our goals. The book, again, is Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. Brad Smith is the president of Microsoft, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Squawk Pod will be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Finally today, we're doing something a little different to introduce you to some of our team. Can you lean forward a little bit and just count? One, two, three, four. Who work with Joe, Becky, and Andrew every day. I'm Max Myers, and I am the executive producer of Squawk Box. I oversee probably the most influential show in all of cable news. Do you have a favorite story? Do you have a favorite anchor? No. <laughs> right. Nobody will listen to this, don't right. worry. In terms of the types of stories that we cover on a regular basis, I am a big fan of our tax and wealth debates. Right now, that is the discussion that is happening everywhere in America, no matter your income bracket, no matter your job, no matter what you do, uh, this reexamination of wealth and capitalism is driving corporate decisions, it is driving the election, and it is explaining many of the choices that we are making in this uh, upcoming electoral season. My name is Ann Taroni. I'm a producer on Squawk Box. I've been with Squawk Box since 2005. And we hear your voice a lot in the podcast. Yes. So when people ask me what I do, I often say that I direct traffic. Let's go. Teasing next. And I keep the train on the tracks. So um, unfortunately, <laughs> I think sometimes that means that I'm the annoying one that keeps saying, okay, that's enough. Time to move it or lose it. PCR2. Sometimes we have guests that call in to the show. And one of the jobs that you do is being the greeter. I'm thinking of two particular guests that called in this year. So uh, I love answering the phone in the control room. It's true. And many days, the field producers and reporters, but hands down, our two most famous call-in guests are Warren Buffett and President Trump. And I was totally thinking about Chris Jenner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> also, Chris Jenner. Thank you. This is true. Chris, thank you for calling in this morning. Thank you. Good morning. I don't know who I was most nervous for, though, to speak to on the phone. Chris. Obviously, Chris Jenner. <laughs> President Trump's phone call to Squawk Box earlier this year was a fairly singular segment, originating when he wanted to respond to an appearance by the head of international affairs at the Chamber of Commerce. That's the largest lobbying group for U.S. businesses. Tell me about that day, because this was not something that we booked in advance. No, it wasn't. We had a trade representative by the name of Myron Brilliant booked in the A Block. And interestingly enough, as he was almost canceled, the guest that we originally had booked couldn't get to the studio uh, because of a snowstorm, I believe, in Colorado. A spring snowstorm. I something think, right? like it was that. Something very it was something very freak. Join us now for more Myron Brilliant. 
And we had him on and he did his thing and apparently the president was watching and texted Joe in the middle of the conversation and Joe walked off set and came into the control room and said, all right, let's do this and handed the phone. I said, who's that? He goes, it's the president of the United States. Let's make it work. So I was like, hi, Mr. President. How are you? How exactly do you want to do this? Just give me the number. Then I got very nervous. I thought I might give him the wrong control room number. And then he said, okay, promote it. Make it big. I'm going to call in 10 minutes. Mr. President, are you with us? I am with you. I guess Mr. Brilliant, uh, who was on from the Chamber of Commerce, you got to see a part of that interview. Well, I guess he's not so brilliant. To me, I think that is uh, the president's best medium. And Joe and Becky rolled with it, and they were uh, they were fantastic. Thank you very much. It's great. Easy, right? It wasn't so bad. That's Squawk Pod for this first day of 2020. Thank you for spending part of your new year with us. And if you've been listening for a while, thanks for sharing in the launch of Squawk Pod. We debuted in the fall of 2019. Our podcast is a hybrid that we hope offers you the smartest moments and best conversations from our three-hour morning show with a little extra. It's a big day here at Squawk Box as we launch a new podcast. What does that do exactly? Do you? How does it? Audio. And that is thanks to the Squawk Box TV anchors, Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Woohoo! As well as the team behind the sounds. He's here too. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, and by Cameron Costa. Anthony Velastro assisted on this episode, which was edited by Edward Fetner. Special shout out to the Squawk Box studio and control room teams who keep the train moving every day. And the bookers and producers who bring us the show's great content. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We will meet you back here tomorrow. Happy New Year. This is so exciting. It's wonderful. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.